Hello, and welcome back to Crane Kick Commentaries. My name is Jake Del Mastro, and as always, I'm joined by my very good friend Keaton Byer. Hello, Keaton. Hello, I like your energy right now. It's it's good energy. It's good energy. It's late. It's late. <laughs> <laughs> I need to need to wake myself up here. Yeah, uh, we are invariably terrible at scheduling things, and I... I w- I'm not going to tell you what time this is right now. No, but I, I genuinely appreciate the that you've put we there. <laughs> <laughs> the absorbing part of the bullet there. I like it. Um, so, well, last week, last week, what did we talk about? We talked about Barry Lyndon, barely, but, you know. Yeah, we talked about Stanley Kubrick's sort of enigmatic personality. Yeah. <laughs> And then we talked about the lead-up to Barry, which are both yeah. equally important to Barry. To we Barry. talked a bit about casting, talked a bit about some history, like, you know, war history specifically. The, yeah, the Seven Years' War. So what are we going to talk about yeah. this week? Uh, and we also talked about some, some hard numbers. Oh, yeah, well, week. satisfaction. I wonder how many times we said satisfaction. Well, I hope I hope they were satisfied. Your satisfaction is not guaranteed, by the way. No, we don't guarantee anything. We guarantee <laughs> yeah. nothing on this podcast. <laughs> We're not in a position to guarantee that. <laughs> yeah, we guarantee that we'll just around an hour of talking is probably what I guarantee you. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, about that. Could be a little bit more, could be a little bit less. Often more. Usually it's more, <laughs> but I just say around because it has been, yeah. I think once it, it was has 49 been minutes. Anyway, this is all oh, yeah? irrelevant information. What is relevant is, really. is that we're talking about Barry Lyndon once more. This is a this is an important episode in the history of Cranky Commentaries. Because this is our first third part of a three parter. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, you could make an entire podcast about this movie. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, to be fair, we've we've cut so many corners already. Yeah, you could yeah. you could do a whole podcast about about this movie. I mean maybe not about this movie, but about Kubrick's filmography. Easily. Yeah, and uh, like, it all bleeds into one another. I think. Yeah, definitely does. As we've said, so so what are we talking about this week? So we gotta we gotta get to uh, talking about the actual production, the meat and potatoes of how this movie was made, and in that we're going to also talk about how they shot it, which is very important for this movie actually. It, um, perhaps and out of any film we've talked about, this might be the most. Probably the most important one so far today. But before we get to that, uh, I think we're just gonna touch on touch on the music of Barry Lyndon. Yes, yes. Which you have you have heard, you know, at various points in the intro and such to this podcast. Do you want to talk about his approach to music because it's it's, it's definitely kind of different. Yeah, I mean it's it's different than a lot of directors, uh, in the sense that. There is very rarely, like, an original score in his films. The He uses music that was not composed for the movie, in general. Yeah, 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 exactly. He uses, like, uh, 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 classical pieces that are... Uh... Classical pieces, but not always classical music. It depends on the film, right? Yeah, I suppose um, that's true. I suppose that's true. I believe I have one of my favorite quotes from... Stanley Kubrick, let me find it. Let me see if I can find this. Oh, sick. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, he's not he's, he's not just into classical music. No, no, because, I mean, Full Metal uh, Jacket has, you know. Well, as, as I am going to quote him, 
Stanley Kubrick, this is my favorite quote by Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> Surfing Bird is an amazing is such an amazing piece of music. <laughs> Say that again. Just one more time. Surfing Bird is such an amazing piece of music. Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course. If you haven't heard Surfing Bird, <laughs> it's 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 an amazing piece of music. <laughs> it's an amazing piece of music. <laughs> um, and, but it, he didn't. The point is, he didn't write it. <laughs> it yeah, wasn't written and, for that movie. You know, there are uh, other directors who do that. He's not like solely unique in that. But uh, like, for example, Scorsese also does that. But um, right, he's. Uh, it's certainly like a hallmark of his, and I think it started basically around two thousand one. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone's thinking of that one, the One Piece. Yeah, so because there was a score, an original score written for two thousand one. Oh, really? Yeah, and like fully real? Was it like fully realized, or was it just? Like... It was fully realized. It wow. was recorded and written and everything, <laughs> and. I just trapped you with a Star Trek connection. <laughs> oh my god. I just took a drink of water and I almost spat it out. <laughs> because the unreal... Well, it was realized, but it was just not in the movie. The score that was cut from 2001 to Space Odyssey was composed by none other than Alexander Courage. Oh my god, of course it was. Who... <laughs> wrote the Star Trek theme where no man has gone before yeah yeah he wrote the Star Trek theme that is an amazing connection but yeah so basically um, I think since then he sort of decided to sort of uh, pick his uh, his scores from music that yeah. already exists. It seemed like it was an and active choice, but I'm not really sure what, why. Here's my thoughts. Okay. And once again, this is speculation as yeah, to as why he... he might do something like that. And my my thoughts is that basically, oftentimes, you know, a director, while they're sort of assembling the movie, might be like listening to selections of music or whatever. Yeah. He'll often sort of find one that he likes, or, or sorry, that they like. Um, the the thing is that when you then bring in a composer to then compose something to put in there, you... but the director's already found a piece of music that they like. Right. It's not gonna. It's not it's gonna not match gonna be up. Perfect. It's not gonna be. Uh... Yeah. So I I think Stanley basically fell in love with like these selections that he found. And, uh, right, it was all it all and, plays into you think it all plays into his uh yeah his massive pre production where everything had to to, to... yeah so uh, basically he's able to check and he's able to try a bunch of different soundtracks out right to see if they work right whereas if you're composing a soundtrack specifically for the movie and you don't like it it's really expensive to go get another one right yeah. Yeah, it's true. But with with a a soundtrack, you can just switch it up. Exactly. Um, also, I don't know if this was Stanley that said this, 
I think this might have. I think this might be a quote from not a quote because I don't actually remember what the actual words are. But paraf- I might be paraphrasing. Paraphrase. I might be paraphrasing Stanley's wife, but that basically like uh, any no matter what composer he would have hired, you know. It wouldn't have been Beethoven. It wouldn't have been, you know, uh, oh, <laughs> he wouldn't have been quote. able to get Mozart or oh, Strauss no, or whatever, right? Excellent quote. Or paraphrase, yeah. rather. Yeah, no, it's yeah. totally true. Like, and did he play the soundtracks that he had selected on set? Is that a thing? Oftentimes, that I, yes. That's not a thing I'm making up. No, that is not a thing. You can see in, we mentioned in the last episode that there was a, a sort of behind the scenes, uh, some footage from The Shining. Yeah, and you can see specifically where they're going through the hedge maze with the kid. Yeah. Oh, right. With Danny. I remember that. They're they're playing the music. I think that's a great way to to establish the uh, the tone, and if it's specifically curated for that. I mean, especially if you know that that's going to be the thing that's in the movie anyway. Well, exactly. Yeah, because I I believe we we tried to cop that once. That's what. I, that's <laughs> why I was. Uh, <laughs> that's why I wasn't sure if I was making it up because I thought maybe you had told me that that's what he did, but I wasn't yeah, sure. no, no, but that is that is in fact what he did. <laughs> I don't know specifically on this set if on Barrett Linden what what yeah. was the case, but I don't know. Maybe uh, there, I have some more. I I presume that he would have on certain scenes. There is, but um, there's some more information about the music which will come more into the production. So. Right. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But. So, I mean, we should probably say what the theme is that is in this movie. The main theme? The main theme. So, um, the main theme is a piece called Sarabond. Sarabond? Sarabond. Um, Sarabond, uh, which I believe is by George Frederick Handel. Yes, Handel. Um... There is a more long name for what it is. Sweet in D minor. Sweet in D minor uh, by George Frederick Handel. Uh, Sarabond is the specific bit, I believe, that he uses in this movie. Right. And that would be this. And, um, like, as we were saying, like, he generally did use, uh, for, and most of the the memorable music bits that you will remember from a Stanley Kubrick movie will be music that is, uh, I, I don't know, needle drops is, is, is I think, the, the, the word for this. Essentially, it's music from a record that doesn't come from the film. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. However, uh, that is not to say that, that never was... Never, that that they never that he never used um, original music, original music specifically. I'm thinking in Clockwork Orange, and in The Shining, uh, much of it was composed by Wendy Carlos. Oh, really? Yeah. So, uh, who you may know for having done Switched on Bach. Um, Indeed. So, I think maybe one of the reasons why he wanted her to do it was because of uh, I don't know. It was synthesizer music, so yeah, probably, exactly. he probably wasn't too familiar with like that. Uh, you know, aspect of music making, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just look sorry. Just totally funny. Uh, 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 sidestep here is one of the uh the the pieces in the in this in the movie. In Barry Linden. In Barry Linden, is a piece called Hochen Friedberger March. Yeah. And you'll notice the writer of that um piece is none other than Johann Sebastian Bach. No, it's Frederick oh. the Great. Oh, oh, weird. Uh, I thought we were because we were talking with Switch on Box. So. Yeah, we were. No, but uh, uh, oh, Frederick the Great. That's a throwback to yeah. last episode. Did he actually write music? Yeah, seems so. Oh, weird. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Cool little. Very authentic. Yeah. That 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 first piece you were playing, but then also I think the the one that opened the the second um the second part. That was used at the end for the uh, the duel. Both those pieces are are kind of perfectly chosen for this movie. I think. I believe that um, it's just different instrumentation of the same oh. theme. So if, if you listen, so he, he I see what you mean. Right. He now. didn't have a score written, but he did have pieces arrangements recorded. performed. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, this is the theme from the main theme from the film. Mm-hmm. So it's ba 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 ba, you know. Yeah. And so then, if we hear the dual theme, it's. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's so it's the same theme. It's just played on the symphonies, yeah, and yeah, it's, it's much lower. Symphony, yeah. That's hilarious. Um, so that that's kind of cool. That is cool. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's that's all we have to say about the music. Um, yeah. Once again. It having not been like bespoke music for the film, there's only so much you can say about it. Like other than like go listen to Handel. Um, but I'll, I would say the, the this the music for this film typifies a Stanley Kubrick music selection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Although it doesn't have any of the the old Ludwig van. Is that of the right era though? I'm trying to be Malcolm McDowell there. I, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what were we gonna say so moving on from that's what i was gonna say yeah moving on from the music we have uh the actual production of the film the actual production of the film at long last so how the film acquired the title of <laughs> how, yeah how the film acquired the style and title of barry linden i realized we haven't been titled we only titled the first segment what do you mean? Oh yeah. I mean, we'll just write it. We'll just write it into the. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. We'll come up with okay. a name. You'll find out. I'm not sure. Like, like part two is called um, part two, containing an account of the misfortunes and disasters which befell Barry Lyndon. So, I don't know how we're gonna figure that one out. But well, I mean, we did talk about some misfortune. Yeah, that's but true. I don't think it's necessarily. Anyway, this is part three now. It is part three. So, when last we left off, what's, what was Stanley well, doing? Well, at some point in all of this, Stanley moves to Ireland because... Like, he, he starts living in Ireland for the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's for that purpose. Yeah. It's not just for fun, but he, 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 he rents a house there because he's going to be shooting there. For a very long time. <laughs> for a while. So, yeah. So, this is what I was talking about, where, like, the production and the pre-production kind of overlap with him in a lot of ways because... I think it's more about, like, levels of production, if you know what I mean. Like, the first... Yeah, it's a phased kind of production. Exactly. It's extremely phased. 
so phase one is he goes there and yeah. he brings a small number number of people, specifically production designer Ken Adam, who we're gonna who talk we have mentioned before. We have as well. talked about before, and we will talk about again. Yeah, because he's very important in this movie. Very important, actually. Oscar um, winner yeah. Ken Adam. Oscar winner for this for movie. this movie for this movie. Yeah, and along with Ken Adam, there was like a bunch of location scouts and photographers, mm-hmm. and one of them I think was Kubrick's niece. So one person said it was his niece. One person said it was his daughter. It could very be. It could be completely possible that they were both. It could it both could be either. Who knows? Yeah. So it's, it's not. It's not the daughter we're not talking about, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not Vivian. <laughs> I mean, it's not. I don't know if it's the one we're not talking about or not. Okay. <laughs> so they go to a city called Waterford, which is in the southeast of Ireland. There's a new hotel built there. They rent out the whole top floor for all these location scouts. Okay, so we're specifically talking about when we say Ireland, we mean the country of Ireland, right? Not uh, yeah, not Northern Ireland. I would have said we need to be very specific because this is very important. Is very yeah. It's in the southeast of the country of Ireland, not yes Northern Ireland. Yes. Apparently, Kubrick hung a bunch of like. I don't know if they're paintings or copies of paintings or whatever, but in the hallway of the hotel, he wanted to get people in the uh, in the right space, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So how it would work is they would give the location scouts like a page. He didn't want them to have more than like a page or two at a time. He didn't. He, it's a need to know basis. Exactly. You're on an. It's a need to know <laughs> basis. And they, yeah, they would just go out and and uh, scouts around Waterford, uh, looking for you know their assignments. And they did that for mm-hmm. a long-ass time before yeah. they even, you know, like, should we talk about, I don't know if you plan on talking about the Boxes documentary in your... Uh, I'll I'll probably reference it several times, but I don't think we're going to talk about, like, a thoroughly... Yeah, because I think we brought it up in part one. We've brought it up before. I think we brought it up in part one, but yeah. Basic The Boxes documentary, it's it's so interesting. It's I very think. interesting I think and I think if you're if you're interested in Stanley Kubrick or his films, you should probably watch it. Exactly. And it it, it gives such a excellent idea of his pre production methods. Exactly. And how like, extensive and just how many like photograph how important this location yeah. scouting process probably was. Yeah, no no. I wouldn't be surprised. If, like, I, I wonder, because, like, you know, he's a guy that likes to do a lot of takes, right? Yeah. Did he use more film actually filming the movie or scouting locations? Like, it's, that's the thing. It's like, it's honestly, who knows? It could be either. Who knows? Because, like, to, to get an understanding of, like, how, like, thoroughly a lot of these things were researched was, like, in the Boxes documentary, they were talking about a scene in Eyes Wide Shut where there is... Essentially, Tom Cruise is standing in a doorway. Yeah. Essentially. Yep. And so this is like a f- five second scene, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so he sends uh, several people all across the whole of London, essentially, <laughs> to go take pictures of doorways. And there's literally hundreds of pictures yeah. of doorways. This is for a five second scene. Yeah. And he's just got like. Hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands, for Christ's sake. Maybe thousands. Who knows? Who knows how many doorways there are? But anyway, the d- none of these doorways end up being the location they used in the film because they end up building an entire set for it. <laughs> yeah. 
So this is like. But that's that's a different movie. Let's. <laughs> that, that is a different movie, but that uh, it crosses into a lot of what we were talking about last episode about mm-hmm. he's not a perfectionist because that is not a perfect way to do things. No. Yeah. That is a chaotic Definitely way to not. do things is to waste all that time looking for doors and then to just build it instead. But anyway, well, we, we got into all that last. Yeah, I don't think he would consider this <laughs> waste. Waste is the wrong word. Because he doesn't waste time and he doesn't waste money. <laughs> no, no, no. Not from his perspective. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't yeah. necessarily consider it wasted per se, but yeah. But he didn't need to do it in the end. Yeah, I mean, who knows? <laughs> Maybe he needed, you know, there's a, what did Thomas Edison say? There's, I found a, oh. a hundred ways not to make a light not bulb. Not to, not to make a light bulb. Yeah, yeah even like though that. fucking Thomas Edison didn't make the light bulb, but fucking Thomas Edison's a piece of shit. Oh, okay, I know you. That's mentioned. In, okay, let's just. I'm not gonna get sidetracked. <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna allow it to happen. Fair enough. Um, um. <laughs> where what, what were we talking about? Uh, the pre-production. So yeah, well, the, we were talking about all the 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 the, the pictures in the, in the boxes. Basically, is what I was getting at. Is this location yeah. scouting process must have been super intensive. Yeah. So, okay, so I also want to say that, like, um, one of the reasons why this whole process is going on is because Stanley decided that he wanted to shoot the entire thing on location. Yes, yeah, sorry. Because yeah, he thought it would be cheaper. Well, that's what he said. <laughs> but anyway, um, whether or not it actually was cheaper, uh, I don't know. We'll never know. If we had access to the boxes, I bet you it's in there. Do you really want to get your fucking... I mean, who wouldn't, to be honest? There's probably so much information that we would be able to, like... Try, like I mean, the, the question would be finding it, though. Oh, yeah, there's just too much physical stuff to pour through. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway. But anyway, yeah, so... So there's a lot of goddamn paintings. A lot of paintings, and more. there's a lot of photographs. Um, yes, photographs of paintings, photographs of locations, photographs of costumes, photographs of places literally everything you can imagine yeah just so all these photographs end up with kubrick and uh, um ken adam in kubrick at his at his homestead they had set up some sort of makeshift operating command center center. i I believe that's what ken adam called it is that what he called it yeah yeah he had. He said he had maps, and he was like a general, you know. Yeah, exactly. And then, was he like Napoleon? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was like Napoleon. Yeah. So, in the usual fashion that we've described, like in the boxes, he poured over all of these photographs, and this is kind of a theme I noticed. People talking about Kubrick during this film specifically. Yeah. That he kind of had a paranoia developing. Even earlier on? Yeah. From some stuff we're going to f- talk about later, I don't think it's entirely unfounded. <laughs> no, not at all. Regardless, apparently uh, Ken Adam apparently told him something along the lines of, you know, you're going to have to go out there sooner or later because they're just, you know, in this quote-unquote command center amassing piles of photographs. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Ken Adam also mentioned something, which I don't know if you, if you probably... Uh, clocked it, the VWs. Yeah, I did. Basically, they drove around Ireland in, like, this fleet of VWs, essentially. Yeah. 
there's conflicting stories about the VW. Okay. Which is might seem uninteresting, but the details are quite funny. So I'm gonna tell you the okay, yeah, the, yeah. the conflicting stories about the the VWs. The the first one, probably the more likely one. I believe it comes from Ken Adam. It, mm-hmm. But it might come. From- so Ken Adam, like once again, I don't. I think we mentioned this, but anyway, he's the production designer. Production designer, yeah. So, yeah. And yeah, he he was brought on very early, as I mentioned. According to Kubrick, the world's best production. Yeah, designer. exactly. So according to Kubrick, or at least um, that's what Kubrick told Ken. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and then that's what Ken told us. Um, well, yeah. Us specifically, but but uh, he was saying that Kubrick was adamant that they all acquire VWs. Apparently right. he had his mind set on them for whatever reason. Who knows? Well, this doesn't surprise me, knowing what I know about him. No, no, because from what I know, he's like, like he's he's really obsessed with like getting all the best stuff. You know what I mean? Right. And VW's made the best cars. Well, I don't know. Like, but at some point, basically, I'm sure that he was in a VW and he liked it. Right. <laughs> and basically, gotcha. um, yeah, that makes sense. when Stanley Kubrick likes something, like that he would, becomes very attached to it, I think. That would definitely track. <laughs> uh, we're we're going to talk about that later, I think, uh, Getting attached in some of the research stuff? that I did. Well, yeah, sort of. Um, but yeah, like it doesn't surprise me that he would, you know, decide VWs were the best. Right. And then... By specifically VWs. Right. Well, that's the first story, is that that's what happened. Yeah. The other story is a lot more fun, but okay. probably... Okay, I actually saw this on the outline. I think it's funny. Yeah, it's hilarious, but it's probably not true. Okay, I choose to believe that it is. I also choose to believe it. Um, so I was watching yeah. an Irish documentary about Kubrick's time in Waterford. It was, what was it called? It's called like Hollywood Comes to Ireland or something. Um, and it's like an I- Irish series about films shot in Ireland. Um, but anyway, the point is that the story was that there was um, one morning in Waterford, a strange looking young man with hip clothes and a ponytail <laughs> and a bandana uh, rocked up to the Ford dealership. Right. And he asked to, I forget if it was buy or rent. I think it might have been buy. Right. But like 20 vehicles, like eight buses and like four, what have you, et cetera, et cetera. And the dude at the de- at the Ford dealership thought this, this weirdo was joking. So he sent him away. Later that night, though, the, the Ford dealership guy, he goes to the pub where uh, there's a huge celebration going on. And some guy gives him a gives him a shot, and he explains that the festivities are are being paid for by the owner of the VW dealership, who just made a huge deal on like twenty vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> I choose to believe that that is the truth. I also choose to believe that the other one makes so makes more sense, but but that's way more fun. <laughs> or maybe what happened was that they're both true. And the reason why Stanley was so intent on VWs was because he was very mad at Ford and <laughs> had a vendetta against them because of this interaction. It makes this interaction slightly more believable, I think. Yeah. So that kind of is where the uh, the nebulous pre-production production area kind of ends. Yeah. Because they start their principal photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1973 they really get underway with the actual with the actual so th- this is this is actually when the script that i found was from exactly yeah so this is 
which how many satisfactions was this script from? Was in this one? This is the the lower satisfaction density. The lower satisfaction so it was density. Nine script. satisfactions. Yeah. Right. So for the production, they uh, they hired mostly locals for everything. I think that's pretty standard yeah. practice in a lot of. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely cheaper than having to like bring people along and pay for their room and board and everything. Exactly. Well, that's because one of the things you know they hired obviously extras. Um, yeah. Because they needed so many, but also catering, which is like well, there was a a quote that I think uh, uh, I can't remember exactly who I don't remember who's from. And I don't remember exactly what they said, so you're welcome. I think it. I think it was about Napoleon, and it was the the quote yep. about how an army runs on its stomach. And they were like, "Yeah, it's exactly the same with filmmaking." Um, Wait, is that quote from Napoleon? No, it wasn't a quote from Napoleon. I remember it from Age of Empires too, but <laughs> I, an army marches on its stomach. Don't point that thing <laughs> at me. Anyway, William Wallace campaign. Yeah, William Wallace campaign. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, yeah, it wasn't from Napoleon, but I think someone was evoking Napoleon. Right, 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 right. He was talking about his uh, his army. But anyway, catering, costume production, this is all comes from that Irish documentary I watched because they had interviews mm-hmm. with the locals from who who worked on it, the, the seamstress who, who sewed the costumes, and then the music. So this is this is what I was mentioning earlier. Do you remember the scene with the 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 dance in the, yeah. in the first half? That was a traditional Irish jig, right? I'm sure Stanley did his research to make sure that was accurate. Well, actually, he 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 called up this guy who was like a local uh, uh, flute player. Yeah, and he he called him over and he he came to his house and he like played him some footage, and he was like picked his brain about like so what 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 would they have been playing? What kind of stuff like? Yeah. Um and he plays the he plays him something for the dance. Sorry, I'm just trying to find the name of the song that the dance was. Is it by any chance the women of Ireland, the chieftains or something like that? No. Or the sea maidens? No. Piper's Maggot. That's it. Piper's Maggot. Do you want me to play it? Yeah. I mean, Sick. that is what I associate with Irish music, <laughs> traditional exactly. Irish music, I should say, as opposed to like you know the Pogues or something. Yeah, like exactly. That. <laughs> <laughs> the, the guy who who he called over, who is uh, like the the front man. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Patty Maloney. Um, Patty Malone or Patty Maloney. Patty Maloney. Okay. Well, it ends with a Y. I don't know. Do you not pronounce the Y? Oh, okay. No, no, no. You know, yeah, you you definitely pronounce the Y in that case. Just because I know Malone is also an Irish name. Oh yeah. Anyway, so he 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 ended up selling Kubrick. He said twenty minutes of music after this uh, their get together. Okay. The point is, he was hired locals, and he wanted to be accurate as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely his mo. <laughs> but yeah, so 
we said we were going to talk about Ken Adam because his yeah because he's super important for this uh he's super important for this film yeah a that's one thing another thing is uh his story is very compelling in this film yeah and c is it's a very his story is a very illuminating look into the way stanley kubrick operates i think yeah yeah, I think so. Okay, so basically, basically Ken Adam is like Stanley's favorite, um, like production designer, from what I can tell. He worked on Doctor Strange, though. He worked on a couple other things with Stanley. Yeah. But basically, um, he really wanted him to work on this movie, so he basically calls up uh, Ken Adam and basically is like, "Oh, you know, will you do this? Come on, please!" Like, because I think Ken Adam is not super down to do this at this point because he is aware that 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 working on a stanley kubrick movie is a very large commitment a big commitment yeah so he's like okay come on um I'll, I'll pay you anything you need otherwise i'm gonna have to you know hire the second best production designer <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, he's trying to win him over with flattery yeah yeah you know? So he's like, okay, fine, you know, I'll do it. Um, I'm pretty sure he said, like, so I, I, he told him to, fine, hire the second best one, I don't care. Then, like, a few months later, right, Stanley right, right. calls him back, being like... Yeah, Stanley comes back, and he's like, come on, come, come on, Ken, you know, you're the best. Like, And, I mean, Ken Adam is genuinely, like, amazing at his job. Like, he is really good, there's a reason. Yeah, um, he comes onto the project, and... He seems to, like, regret it almost immediately from what I gather. <laughs> because he'd worked with Stanley in the past, and he knows that Stanley can be a lot. I think I think it's his job, especially in that pre-production stage, to kind of, like, mitigate him. Yeah, it's true. And, and to also to be the guy that's, that, like, um, it's like, no, Stanley, uh, like... You know that wouldn't be completely accurate or whatever. Like you know, we we have to do it this, this, and this way, right? Yeah. So like, uh, he's one of those guys that like Stanley would listen to is the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know exactly. And I actually and and he actually talks about like uh, several times like when they'd be scouting old like old houses and things like that, and then Stanley would see something that he likes. And then he would be like, uh, well, "How about this one, Ken?" And he's like, "No, Stanley, that's." That's Victorian. It's not. Um, I thought he was like... saying that it was the other way around. I thought he was saying that Stanley was like. No, no, no. I that's that. I I got that it was the other way around. So that that Ken was saying no, Stanley. That's uh, it's that's not 18th century. That's um, or, or that's Victorian. That's Victorian. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. And then and then Stanley would be like, but I like it. Prove it. Prove it to me that that's not 18th century. It's like oh god. Yeah, that must be yeah, um, but so eventually they find the places, I guess, but, um, I'm not quite sure on the timelines on this, but, so they do some scanning around and they're in the Jeeps and stuff like this, um, and I think honestly, VWs. uh, with it, with the, sorry, VWs, sorry, did I say Jeeps? Yeah, dog. What am I, I'm such an, it's clearly VWs. But anyway, so, um, like, I think in Ken's head, like, it's, it's, uh, the timelines aren't necessarily, uh, completely straight, the way he tells it. Yeah. I mean, but essentially, like at, he was, like, a 
quite an old man at that point. Yeah, but essentially, at some point, Ken Adam basically has a nervous breakdown. Yeah. It's not implied that necessarily Stanley caused the nervous breakdown. I think that's But he certainly didn't help. (laughs) Yeah, he says... Yeah, he goes back to London and has his mental breakdown. Is what he is the way he put it, or something like that. Yeah, and yeah, he he was in psychiatric like it's a full mental breakdown. He was in a psychiatric ward. He said for a couple of days, and then he was like, yeah, in a regular contact with like you know, he was with meeting a psychiatrist regularly and everything. Um, yeah, exactly. And apparently. Stanley was calling him every day. Yeah. While he was going through his mental breakdown. Yeah. Telling him about the film. Yeah. And the way Ken says it is that he seems to be genuinely concerned for his health, but that also he just couldn't turn it off, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like he like He he couldn't like um be like I don't know, he couldn't not talk about the movie basically. Yeah, basically. And and then uh, um, his his psychiatrist told him apparently that he had to like yeah she's like you're not gonna get better until you uh, you you let go of Stanley <laughs> and cut the umbilical cord I think is the phrase yeah. he used <laughs> yeah so he so he tried to do that I think but um, yeah well I think Stanley like so Ken's getting better and then Stanley is like. Oh, Ken, so glad to hear that you're doing well and everything. So glad to hear that you're better now. Um, you know, I was thinking of, um, you know, doing some second unit footage, uh, like, on in in um, in Germany or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, and I think you should direct it. <laughs> <laughs> like, it makes it seem like Stanley thinks he's being nice. Yeah, I know, exactly. And then... And then, according to Ken, he immediately has another breakdown and has to go back into the yeah to the hospital. Yeah, and so apparently after that, uh, Ken Adam had decided I am never again working with Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, I have to stop. It has to stop. I mean, he won an Oscar for that film, so he did win an Oscar for that film. So I talked a little bit earlier about the. Uh, in the first episode, actually, about the James Bond, uh, yeah, way back collaboration. So the interesting thing is that that happened after this. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why he might have been a little bit. Uh... Apparently, Ken had Ken called Stanley and was like, "I need help lighting this set. Could you help me?" Right. Yeah. Right. And so apparently, um, he Stanley came over. Uh, he did it all in secret because I assume he didn't want to have his name attached to this or whatever. Yeah, right. He didn't want um, a tabloid article coming out being like... It, it, it seems like it was like a favor to Ken, basically. Yeah. Um, like, exactly, yeah. And apparently they didn't... Neither of them brought it up. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah that's, I mean, it's good. So yeah, uh, I guess certainly... Uh, Stanley's uh can ask a lot of people. <laughs> he just doesn't seem to understand how to treat He doesn't people. operate in the same like 
space that most people do i think yeah there's some of this actually in the boxes documentary actually if you if you watch that yeah yeah where they kind of talk about this tendency that he has exactly yeah but yeah so one of the things ken adam mentioned in the video is that they like shut down the production for like six weeks yes because uh, they were, like, didn't really have their shit together yes and they wanted to tighten it up <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. So apparently, uh, so Stanley was was thinking about shutting down production so that they could like get their shit together, basically. Yeah. And he asked Ken, "Do you think it would be okay if we did that?" To which Ken basically said, "You're the only person that can get away with that." <laughs> it's like, yes, we <laughs> could do it, but only because you're Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Like no other production studio would put up with that. Yeah, I know exactly. Um so that's not the end of issues. <laughs> issues. Yeah. And I mean, I think we elected like we could be telling you there's a lot of details about production in terms of like where they shot specifically yeah. locations and castles. And I could read you a bunch of titles of stuff, but I read it earlier and I don't remember any of it. So you can yeah. look it up if you want to know specifically where they shot. There was that one, mm-hmm. um, like, old estate that provided a lot of interiors that, like, burned down, yeah. like, three years afterwards. Um, so that's kind of interesting, an interesting little detail that this film preserves one of the last interior views of that. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, once again, we were saying, like, they, uh, they shot at, like, historical sites for the most part. Like, yeah. these are on, all actual buildings location. from... Yeah, but also that these are genuine buildings from the 18th century. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting that uh, they had the last sort of uh, images of that. Um, But uh, also, apparently, sometimes they had to shoot in between tour groups (laughs) at some of the historic sites. Yeah, they're, like, they tried to have a closed set, but... Yeah, that it just wasn't happening. (laughs) Kubrick must have hated that. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) So, okay, we talked a little bit earlier about the idea that that Kubrick had sort of a paranoid feel about him yes during this entire production and uh there's a good reason do you care to do you care to sort of um dip your toe into why that is Uh, well okay so at the time um Ireland was politically in a tumultuous period um there was an organization known as the uh, the IRA, which was quite active in that time period. Um, in fact, one of the days the shot shooting had to be uh, uh, canceled because of like there were fourteen bomb threats that day. And I think one of the major uh, uh, um, uh, uh, I'm not an expert on this, obviously, but one of the major uh, things was there was a lot of like bomb activity and specifically mm-hmm. bomb threats pretty scary like this is it's pretty scary time to to be yeah. messing with the ira you don't want to mess with the ira obviously yeah so naturally stanley decides that it's a fantastic idea to uh to shoot on location in ireland in... to shoot on location in ireland and not only that but to use would you say dozens or hundreds of uh of British uniformed soldiers. Hundreds. Yeah, Hundreds. I mean, I th- if you don't know, England and uh, has not been good to Ireland, and that's a source of tension. Yeah, basically. But 
so so Stanley shows up with hundreds of are they extras or are they actually soldiers? In this case, I believe they're extras. Okay, so okay. Sorry, they were they were uh, uh, soldiers, reserve soldiers. Were they British soldiers or were they Irish? They were Irish. Okay, okay, but they were dressed up as British. They were soldiers. dressed up as British soldiers. Okay. So, um, essentially, he shows up with like hundreds of red coats. <laughs> <laughs> shows yeah, shows up with shooting a movie with red coats marching into Ireland. Yes. Or just um, marching in Ireland. Like, the, in the movie, they don't yeah. do that, but... So it's not received well. Yeah, people saw him, and there was a... There were multiple incidences. The details of... In- incidents? Incidences. Okay, anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Power through. Apparently, a couple of people showed up to Kubrick's house and tried to get in, um, yeah. saying they were painters, and, like, they were, like... Someone who was there was like, "Don't let them in. They're not painters." To this day, I don't think anybody knows who they are for sure. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh... I think that might have even also been Ken Adam, right? Who said that? But they were trying to make the the implication there that I think it was potentially IRA people trying to get our in, get in. But oh yeah, no, like I mean, I that's possible. It's possible. I mean, I don't know that necessarily necessarily true. It might have just been some people who were curious. Yeah, but they weren't painters. That's the point. Yeah, but regardless, you know, Stanley received some uh, worrying uh, <laughs> communications. Yeah, so production in Ireland came to an end when Stanley got a phone call um, threatening his life and his family's life if he didn't leave Ireland in 24 hours. So that's exactly what he did. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. He was not fucking around with the IRA. Why would you? Like, yeah, knowing how, um, not, knowing how like, he kind of reacts to, I think situations like that i think i think he could like envision everything that possibly could go wrong ah uh, yes except well except for bringing all the red coats to ireland yeah but, like, well, that that's a whole different part of his personality he uh he, he's he, he's he's getting the fuck out of there because yeah 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 they shut it down they finished in uh i think surrey right yes yeah, so they went back to england they went back to england but they were they were mostly done at that point oh suffolk not 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 sorry. Not sorry. Yeah. But yeah, you. I didn't come across um, anything to do with pigeon shit, but but you've written here that pigeon shit was an issue. Pigeon shit was an issue. Um, Care to elaborate? So, so this is this 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 tidbit comes from Leon Vitali. Um, <laughs> essentially. Uh, well, actually, I can he, see why that would be an issue in that scene in the end. Yeah, so it's he's specifically talking about that one scene. <laughs> the scene, the, the duel in the church. Yeah, and uh, he said that, you know, if this were another kind of movie, that that would have been used for comedic effect. <laughs> and also that um, he thinks that him and Stanley were the only two people there that didn't get shit on my pigeons in that scene. Wow. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. Because, um, I don't know if we mentioned this, but uh, essentially, Stanley tends to shoot with a really small yeah, crew. Yeah, he likes a bare-bones crew. I think we mentioned that in episode yeah. one. Yeah. Because it's kind of part of like why he likes to... Uh, uh, um, how he's able to kind of get his fingers into every pie, so to speak. Yeah, but also how he manages to keep his budget, make low. movies that look expensive but are less expensive than you might expect. Yeah, 
but yeah, that's uh, I think that's I mean, well, we have we have much more meaty things to that's, talk about. That's actually, the end of the of the of the of, of the main line. production. But uh, yeah, so we have many things to talk about, specifically in regards to how they shot the movie. Let me crank this shit up. There's your live theme music, folks. Yeah. Well, music, <laughs> theme, theme. Theme sound effect, yes. So you'll notice over that course of um, of us talking, the course of us talking about the production, we, we left out... Some important things. Some important details, and... We did so because we wanted to condense them um, together here. So that's what we're going to do for you now in uh, in how did they shoot it? As uh, as this this segment normally works, is I give my best estimate of how they shot it. Yeah. Uh, what did you notice? What did I notice? Well, yeah. I mean, this film looks fucking beautiful. Like, because yep. obviously I learned a bit about it, reading about it. Yeah, I mean, there's no way you can look at the production stories and not learn something about the exactly, way they did it. Exactly, but, but, but... Because that's, I think, what a lot of the discourse around this film is. Exactly, that is so important to this this, this movie, but I found... So important to really any of Stanley's movies, actually. Yeah, I was just thinking that when I was watching it the last time. Just like, it's so hard to just not think that at every every shot is yeah. just perfect. Um, perfect's the wrong word. What do you mean? Well, that would imply. Oh yes, yes, it's not perfect. That would... There's a light in one scene. Yeah, a, you can see it. Light. But anyways, do you want to take the reins <laughs> here and uh, lead us through this segment? Yes. So uh, we're gonna talk about how they shot it. Um. So. Uh. First off, let's uh give credit to our director of photography, John Alcott. Indeed. Uh, John Alcott, who I think we've talked about a couple times. Yeah, he's come up. He has essentially worked on a ton of Stanley Cooper movies. Um, yeah. He's the director of photography. Yeah. What can I say? And I think he was also, he was probably one of the earlier people I forgot, like, brought on in the pre-production. Yeah, definitely. He was probably one of the earlier people brought on, yeah. you know. So, uh, also our uh, first assistant camera. Douglas Milsom. That's the that's the focus puller. That is the focus puller. Yes, and actually, they have a very important. Uh, they are very central to one of the anecdotes about the. Uh, yes. About, about this film. The specific anecdote I'm I'm not familiar with, but why, I think I've come across, and I'm excited for it. Okay. Good. Good, good. So this is a heavyweight segment because, like, you could probably do three podcast episodes just about how they shot this movie, to yeah. be honest. Okay, so did you notice anything out of the ordinary about the shape of this movie, or rather the aspect ratio? The way it filled my TV yeah. without 
having a letter box. But did it have any other kind of box? Did it have another kind of box? Was there a side box on it? No. Was. There was. <laughs> yes. Uh if you if you have if you got the version of the film that I told you to get. I did, yes. <laughs> so yeah, there's if you if your TV is a 16 by 9 TV, then which most people's are these yeah. days. Um then you will have a small pillar box on each side. Yeah, this is like, it's actually less wide than a normal TV show. Weird. And that is that is not that common. Um, and uh, there's actually a bit of controversy. Really? About the aspect ratio of this film. <laughs> really? And a lot of it comes down to one Leon Vitale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically... After Kubrick died, um, essentially DVDs and Blu-rays had to be made, right? Right. Wow. And so Leon was given the job of supervising those because he was Kubrick's assistant. He had worked with him for many, many years. Right. Um, and he was adamant that uh, the correct aspect ratio for Barry Lyndon is 1.77 to 1. Which, if you calculate what is 16 over 9, Point. that is 1.77 to 1, roughly. <laughs> Re- um, which is the size of a 16 by 9 TV. I see. But that's, now this, in fair... That's not correct. No movie, no movie is shot that way, or was shot that way. That is preposterous. 1.77. 16 by 9 is an aspect ratio that was essentially invented to invented in the 80s when widescreen TV was a thing initially. <laughs> right. So like it seems preposterous that he would shoot this in an aspect ratio that there were no screens that were that shape. Precisely. Yes, that's ridiculous. So uh why did Leon Vitali say this? I have no idea. And why was he so adamant that it was 1.77 to 1? seems something very, like a I very have no strange idea. hill to die on. And how do we know that he's wrong? How do we? Click know? on the link. Okay. So Jake has <laughs> supplied me with a link to not, to click on, but not until this this portion. So here we go. Oh, this looks good. December 8th, 1975. Dear projectionist, an infinite amount of care was given to the look of Barry Lyndon. The photography, the sets, the costumes, and in the careful color grading and overall lab quality of the prints and the soundtrack. All of this work is now in your hands and your attention to sharp focus, good sound, and the careful handling of the film will make this effort worthwhile. Oh my God, is this... Is this... This is a letter from Stanley Kubrick to the projectionist of the film. I believe this would have been distributed with when the theater got a copy of the film to project, right? That is so unbelievable. If there's one thing that Stanley spent almost as much time complaining about other than the press saying things about him. Yes. Cuz he read all his press. Because he did read all his press. <laughs> was bad uh, or subpar 
screenings screenings of his films or any film for that matter he was always complaining at how the uh the films were always scratched uh you know or somebody would be using a screen that was too big for their light source and the picture was dim and or like (laughs) this is i mean that's fair enough i mean a good projectionist is back in the day is a a took effort more so than... yeah no no it, it took yes yeah 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 and like i mean in a lot of cases uh you know you didn't always have a trained projectionist uh in oh really and it, was just, it, it wasn't just some guy yeah yeah um so i think when you yeah when you went to a uh a good screening like there's a difference. I mean, it's something that actually, like, you know, it's strange because when you go to the theater, pretty much it's it's generally pretty consistent now. Yeah. Like, um, whether it's better, I'm not going to comment. But <laughs> well, that's a whole other debate that we'll save. For. It's at least more consistent. That'll be in part um, four. Okay. So you will see now on this that there is a point form list yes. underneath this this thing. Direct your attention to number two on this list. Okay. Number What does it number say? Number two. Barry Lyndon uh, was photographed in one to one point six six aspect ratio. Sorry, colon six six aspect ratio. Please Yeah, I don't know why he does the colon there. It might be something wrong with his typewriter, but it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but I think what he means is 1.66. 1. 1.66. 1. 1 to 1.66. 1 to 1.66 aspect ratio. Please be sure you project yeah. it at this ratio, and in no event at less than 1 to 1.75. Okay. So, Keaton. <laughs> yes. 1.77. Is that more or less than 1.75? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 1 over 1.77 is, in fact, less than 1 over 1.75. So, Leon Vitale was very much in... uh, incorrect. Incorrect. And I don't know if he'd ever read this. I don't know why he thought that it was that. That's really weird. But, yeah, apparently he has, like, a, he has a, ten, he has a sort of a, a tracker of not always saying correct things. Who? Why... Who is he? So he he was Stanley Kubrick's assistant, but he also played Lord Bullington in this movie, right? I know, but like, why did he become his assistant? What? I have how no. Did they... I mean, apparently somebody actually made a whole film about him, which I have yet to watch. Really? But, um, yeah. Uh, it must have been an interesting relationship. Yeah, it must have been. Like, I don't. Because he became his lifelong. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like personal assistant. His his personal assistant and like from all accounts his his good friend too yeah, like they're just acting in his film so okay uh i i don't know what leon Vitale was thinking i don't know why i'm so irked about this aspect ratio thing. Uh, that is well i know exactly why yeah, i'm so exactly. irked about it but because <laughs> he specifically took the time <laughs> he took the time to write this down <laughs> i know this in a very this is such a fantastic uh uh this is so pedantic. It is. There's, it's the most pedantic thing I've ever seen. There's ten bullet points, some yeah. of which have some of which have 
A B like sub bullets, sub bullets. to them. A B C etc. Uh, and then it's Stein at the bottom. Sincerely, Stanley Kubrick. Yours sincerely, Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> That's so good. That out of the way. Uh, do you think there was anything up with the camera in this movie? Oh, wait, wait, wait. One more thing. One more thing about that. Um, oh, yeah, but the aspect ratio. To, uh, to finish the aspect ratio. Why? One point. I said, why would he use 1.77? Because there was nothing that used that aspect ratio. Yeah. Furthermore, why would he use 1.66? Yeah. Because clearly he did. I, I have a theory. Yeah, what is your theory? My theory is that... So 1.66 to 1 is actually an aspect ratio that was used often for a lot of early widescreen films. Right. So it wasn't quite as wide as the standard widescreen aspect ratio, which is 1.85 to 1. Um, right. However, it was also used in a lot of European films. But why did he pick that? And I think the reason he picked it is because of his still photography background. Right. It like So a a thirty five millimeter still photograph has a one point five to one aspect ratio, which is very close to one point six six. Yeah. Um so my guess is because I guess he just liked that aspect ratio for framing things and he had a lot of experience using it. Makes sense, yeah. You, you go with yeah. what you know. Or what? What are his other films shot in? Like just what? Uh, uh, I think generally. Well, okay. So, two thousand one, A Space Odyssey uh, was shot in two point two two one for various reasons, of which I don't think we need. That's a, that's a whole two thousand one's a different story. What about Clockwork Orange? I believe that that was one point six six as well. Interesting. So then I guess it's... I believe in general he used 1.66. Sometimes some of them I believe are the standard aspect ratio of 1.85. Some of his very early films are in 4 by 3. So 1.33 to 1. I think he used it because I think he he liked the my speculation is that he liked the aspect ratio from still photography. With that, let us move on. Do you think there was anything odd with the camera? Anything interesting with the camera? Not that I could possibly speculate on. I mean, yes, okay. I think there was because it's Stanley fucking Kubrick that we're talking yes. about. Yes. Um, so it's the basically they used three main cameras for this movie. There's oh, there's a there's a handheld one. Yes. There's a dolly one, and then okay. a middle one. <laughs> You're very close. Uh, so there is a handheld one. Right. And there is another one. And then there's a third one, which was used for special scenes, which we will talk about later. Okay. So uh, the first thing was an Aeroflex 35BL. So this was the main camera that they did most of the movie on. Uh, this is a camera that it's on a tripod generally like you probably wouldn't do this handheld uh you might have it on a dolly right it's uh yeah it's a it's although uh this had a very specific feature that was very useful to them when they were doing the film what is that uh that it had a it had um an aperture control like a geared aperture control geared aperture control yeah so you can change the aperture from a knob on the body of the camera 
to allow you to very finely adjust the aperture and therefore the exposure of uh-huh. the film. And that was really, really important because of something we're going to talk about later. <laughs> okay. well, now, the next thing that was used was a... Uh, this was Stanley's favorite camera. What was it called again? I'm so bad at remembering these. So, so the first one was called the, the, the Airflex 35BL. Airflex this is 35 not Stanley's BL. favorite camera. The second one is Stanley's yes. favorite camera. This is Stanley's favorite camera. This is the Aeroflex 2C. 2C. So another Aeroflex camera. He likes the Aeroflex. Uh, he does like Aeroflex cameras. Um, so this is a very small camera, actually. Uh, so this is the handheld one. Yeah, so this is actually uh, this is actually not much larger than my K3. Um, Which is donating its sorry, sound I, effects. Yes, donating sound effects. They're... Uh, I, I didn't actually mention this. Anyway, the sound effect for this is from my 16mm camera. But um, essentially, it's a 35mm camera, the 2C, that is not much bigger than a 16mm camera. That's pretty cool. I mean, I think, is that the camera? That's the camera that I assume he's photographed with all the time. That is, yeah, the one that he's holding in his hand, right? Yeah. He's holding it in one hand, usually. Because yeah. um, it's small enough that you can carry it around. Uh, so this was used for handheld shots in the movie. And sometimes on a tripod, I guess, depending on when they need to use another new camera. There's a great photograph of him filming the, the, the bare-knuckle boxing match. Yes, oh, you know, so... I didn't even count uh, that as, in, our count, in our count of the duels. Oh, I guess that's true. That's I mean, that's not really a duel, but yeah, I guess... it's not really a duel. They didn't demand satisfaction. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, go on. So, uh, interestingly, yeah, so... Uh, you kind of mentioned this, but I actually, in the notes, I have this called Cameras and Operation because specifically this is the camera that Stanley filmed with. Uh-huh. So whenever there was a handheld shot in the movie, Stanley would do it himself. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's um, Stanley having his fingers in the pie. He likes to be in control. Yeah, exactly. So I think in general, his process was to uh, go around the set with what's like a director's viewfinder, which is essentially just a camera lens on an eyepiece. Yeah. And he would like, he would basically set up the whole shot in his head, right? Yeah. yeah you... And then uh, when possible, I think he would prefer to do it himself. <laughs> Otherwise, I guess Alcott would do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's great footage of him with this viewfinder. Yeah, but like he's 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 basically he's filming the whole movie before they film the movie. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> like he knows exact exactly what they're gonna shoot. Although, like specifically, like he never planned what shots they were gonna do ahead of time. You mean like before they got there? No. Yeah. So he. They would always go through the whole scene, and then he would decide how to shoot it by watching what the actors were doing and moving the camera around it. So, well, that's right. Interestingly, he always wanted them to show enough, up in full costume. Every yeah, he's like, I can't decide how to shoot this unless everybody is in full costume, and he didn't like to use uh, stand-ins either. So the actual actors had to show up. What hours, hours early. early, so that he could set up his shots. <laughs> And I mean, you know, in full period piece. If costume. you like that, you like that. But 
not it's not for every actor, right? Yeah, in especially if you're wearing full period piece garb. Exactly. I mean, Marissa Berenson, I can only imagine what like her fucking like it must have been brutal for yeah, her. Yeah, seriously. But yeah, um generally, yeah, so they would move the they would move the camera around the actors so they would do all the blocking and everything before they actually knew where the camera was going to come from which is actually interesting because for somebody who's so like visually focused and they're visually focused around the camera you would think that he would decide maybe where he was going to shoot something before he decided where the actors were going to walk but no yeah so it would essentially it would be like it would be like a stage play almost you know what i mean where everybody's doing their actions and then he would move the camera through it that's such a cool way to shoot. Yeah. But the thing is, it requires the actors to all be there doing the scene over and over again. Yeah, it's a lot of work <laughs> Until for he actors. decides what he wants. It's a lot of work for the actors. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. They get um, puppets to him at a certain point. Yeah. So, so now I'm going to talk shortly about the third camera that was used. Uh, so this camera is a Mitchell BNC. Different brand. Yes, so this is not an Aeroflex. This is a very old camera. So this is a camera that came around in, like, the 1930s, essentially. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, although these are very high-quality cameras, uh, and many of them even still work today. Of course, of course. Different uh, um, different methods. And they are ginormous. <laughs> so very different from the Aeroflex 3C. Sorry, Aeroflex 2C. Right. They're ginormous. Ginormous camera. Uh, but uh, it, this was a special Mitchell BNC. A special? Because it was modified in a certain way. In a Kubricky sort of way? Not necessarily. It was modified in order to accommodate something that uh, I will talk about later. Oh, sick. <laughs> okay. So, that is the camera's. Now I'm going to move on to lighting. Yes, the lighting. That's something that's super interesting Which about this film. Which is the most interesting bit about this film. Yeah, that came up I again think. and I again and again. I think that that is the most interesting bit. I, so, I agree. It is a common misconception that this film is entirely shot under natural light. Really? It is a common misconception because I, I heard that many times while researching this film. Yes, that is not strictly true. It is true to say that this film was entirely shot under practical lights. What does that mean? <laughs> you please The elaborate. difference being that natural light would mean like this is entirely shot under like, you know, the sunlight or uh, uh, like they didn't have studio lights in there, right? I see what you're getting at here. <laughs> yeah. So they did have studio lights, but they are all practical lights, meaning that every light that that was shining light onto the scene was part of the set. Like it had a it had a function in that scene. Meaning you know it I mean? was candlelight. It was candlelight, or even if it was sunlight, but not actually sunlight. So basically, like there were studio lights used. There was like big, ginormous, like giant floodlights, basically, like used in this movie. But the one scene I thought that's not natural light is when he kisses her um, on the on the porch. 
and it's like supposed, right. it's supposed to be flooded by all this moonlight. Mm-hmm. That that one scene, I was like, "There's no way that that's that's there's got to be floodlights up there." Uh, there might have been one, yeah, but but the point being that so a practical light is a light that is part of the set, like it's it it serves a function in the in the set. Yeah. As a result, a lot of furniture and shit had to be sort of rearranged to accommodate like where the windows were and everything. <laughs> right. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, and a lot of times, what they would do is. Because the natural light wasn't necessarily reliable all the time, so what they would have to do is uh, take these giant studio lights and shine them through the window and put tracing paper between the sheets and the window. Oh my god. So you can actually see in a lot of scenes, the windows just look completely white and there's like light coming through yeah 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 i noticed that totally. uh so it's very possible that that entire sequence was shot at night that's so weird yeah um because especially because they were having trouble because you know they had to shoot some of these places through to between tour between groups tours like that. yeah so they, didn't, they didn't always have like the optimal times to do this right so they did that um they they very much had to design the shots around where the where the windows were and such in the the, the uh, thing because you couldn't modify the yeah. set because it's an old building, right? Yeah, exactly. You can't like just put a new window. No, you can't just make a new window. If the if the light's not there, then the light's not there, yeah. right? <laughs> so there was also a lot of shots done out, outside, which you know by necessity kind of have to be shot by uh, natural light. Yeah, that goes without saying that. Some of them are at least natural light. Yeah, so there is a. This is where that aperture control on the camera became really handy. Go on. So, um, I need to sort of at this point explain some very basic photography. Yes, please, please <laughs> do. Because, uh, so if you're if you're not familiar with photography and if you are just ignore what I'm about to say take a take a quick break essentially uh you need a certain amount of light to photograph anything right yeah that should be like like film it's just it works just like our eyes right it sees better when there's more light of course so the there are certain factors that determine how sensitive your film is to light or how much light is getting onto your film. Right. These three factors are essentially um, the speed of the film. Right. Which is usually measured in ISO or ASA at the time. Uh, now, at the time, they were using 100 speed, 100, ISA, 100 ASA film, which nowadays would be considered to be pretty slow so it means it requires a lot of light to create a proper image yeah that's on my uh, point and shoot camera that's the lowest setting on the iso <laughs> yeah yeah no on the same with my with my uh my mirrorless it's also the same you can't go below 100 iso <laughs> yeah exactly that's one thing the other thing is your aperture or iris this is essentially like it's exactly like the iris in your eye. 
like it's sort of a a hole that opens or closes to let in more or less light onto the camera. Yeah. Right? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Dilation, pupil dilation and all that. Exactly. Exactly. So, um and then the third thing that affects your uh exposure is luckily completely unimportant in this movie. And that is your shutter speed. And generally for cinema the shutter speed is one forty-eighth of a second most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's a pretty normal shutter speed for for video. Gotcha. Um, so we it, it generally it's considered to be a constant. So you generally don't even think about it when you're shooting cinema. Right. Right. So essentially, why this control was so important that they that they could really fine tune the the aperture on the camera is that that is the thing that decided. How much light was getting onto the sensor? Yeah. Sorry, not the sensor, the, the film. Because it was filmed back in the day. Um, so that means that they could adjust very precisely for changes in light for all the outdoor shots that they were doing. Ah, that's... Yeah, that is useful, being able to minute changes, like, on the fly. Yeah, exactly. So uh, to be able to match one shot to the next one, take to the other, so that you don't have... Uh, so that it looks consistent, right? Oh, yeah. And so actually, there's a that. lot of... A side effect, actually, of changing your aperture is as your as the hole that you're letting light gets in, as, as that opening is getting larger, it also means that less of your scene is in focus. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. So um, I, 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 I don't think I can explain the optics of that right now. I mean, now. there's a whole... <laughs> There's this whole math, math and science and physics about why that is, but essentially, as your as your opening is larger, as your aperture, uh, as your aperture increases in size, I mean, less things are in it focus. It kind of makes you, sense. Like you know, would see, think of like a flashlight that you remember those old flashlights that you could like exactly, push and pull yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the focus or whatever. Exactly, it's the same thing. Wow. It's close to the same thing. It's a similar <laughs> concept. Near enough. So, uh, you can actually see this in some of the scenes uh, in the movie, how the how the, the depth of field is the, is the fancy photography name Indeed. for it, um, changes. So the amount, of th- the, the amount of the scene that is in focus changes while some of the scenes are going on. And, uh, for example, the scene where he's being mugged. <laughs> right. In the in the beginning of the movie, yeah, uh, you can see like in, in the beginning of that it scene, they focus they, from. Well, they start with a very small aperture, right? Because it's really bright out. But as they're shooting it and they're doing all these takes and all these takes, they have to adjust the aperture wider because it's not as bright out. Ah, and you so that near it. so that near the end of the scene, uh, they actually have a really wide aperture, which I think is. Uh, f 1.7 or something like that uh um f 1.7 uh is is generally considered to be a rather large aperture rather what would be a rather small like f 22 it's backwards i know i know that it's backwards but (laughs) just bear with me here okay 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 so i said a large aperture number means it's a very small aperture gotcha don't ask me why Things just work like that sometimes. Yeah. So 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 basically, near the 
end of the scene where he's being mugged, you can see that that actually a very small amount of things are in focus because they had to keep adjusting the uh, the um, the aperture such that the exposure matched in every frame because the light that they were using was, was the sun and was not reliable. Yeah, it was unreliable after having done all the takes that Stanley loved to do. Well, actually, I get the sense he didn't love to do them, but he no, did them yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah, he didn't love to do them. He, just, he, he didn't do so many if the actors got it right. He wanted it to be good, you know? So, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's a one really important part of it. But now I'm going to start talking about candlelight. Yeah, so that's that's the high end of the light. So so when you're outside, that's the brightest thing. Basically, the sun is the brightest light source that you you can run across. Basically, indeed, that you can shoot with. Yeah. So the Stanley had thought about that it would be really really cool to be able to shoot a a scene with just candlelight. And let's be clear, he's been thinking about this for years, since Napoleon. Yeah, he wanted to do it on Napoleon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Napoleon. Now, that is difficult for a lot of reasons. Uh, because, remember, he wanted to do everything with practical light. So he couldn't just have, like, one or two candles on the table and then have a big floodlight into light up the rest of the scene. Yeah, exactly. You know... If if the only light in the film is coming from the candles, then all the light in the scene has to come from the candles. You know what I mean? You can't really make a candle brighter or any less bright than a candle is, can you? Well, actually, you can, and they did. (laughs) Of course they fucking did. I guess it has to do with what you you, burn. Well, the, the candles in this film had three wicks. Oh, my God, of course. Smart. See? Stanley thought of everything, man. I don't know. Exactly. That might not have been Stanley, to be fair. <laughs> I mean, to be like to be fair, I think John Alcott was heavily involved in these. Yeah, of course. I mean, he's the DOP. Like, like I think if if you if you come up with like creative solutions to things, I think Stanley likes that. <laughs> like, yeah, of course. Regardless, um, that's but, a really smart idea. Yeah. So the candles have three wicks, but it still wasn't enough because they were using one hundred ASA film. Yeah, that's the, that's the lowest on my camera. Considered yeah. to be that's that's as low as his camera goes. It's as low as my camera goes. Yeah. Um, not my sixteen millimeter of camera. Of course, goes as yeah. low as low as the film. <laughs> so he couldn't he couldn't get film he couldn't really get film that was faster than that. Economically, at yeah. least. So he um, he essentially did one more trick, where he developed it for longer he put the uh, and he did what's called push processing where essentially you take a hundred speed film and you put it in the chemicals for longer so that more interesting more images developed that's very interesting how does that not so they found well it does to a certain extent right because it, it, you'll end up with a grainier image than had you had you not done it. Right. Um, but the uh, the that brought the film to roughly uh, be approximately two hundred ASA. Getting better. Okay. So so, but it still was too That's dim. The second lowest setting on my camera. Exactly. It still was too dim. They could not get a pro. They had triple wicked cameras. They had 
push processed film. It still wasn't fast still enough. Still not doing the trick. Like they 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 still couldn't get enough it's light onto the film. And so actually, what Stanley would do to check to see if uh, if he was getting the right um, exposure on his film is he would go around with a Polaroid. <laughs> right. And and he because oh right because obviously because it's it's film you don't see it until you develop it yeah. right. So, but he would take a Polaroid. He would set it to the same settings as the movie camera, and then he would know if it developed properly on the Polaroid that when they developed the film, that it would come out right. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's smart. And apparently, he'd been doing that trick since two thousand one. That's really smart. <laughs> and so he then that still wasn't fast enough. So he got the fastest lens he could find, and that was like a f one point two or something like that right. um it probably would have been like t 1.2 or something like that because anyway <laughs> it, cin- cinematography lenses use t-stops but that's not really important um, <laughs> so um but it still wasn't fast enough it was like it wasn't appearing right on the film it, the image was too dim still not so good enough so stanley not one to be easily dissuaded. <laughs> he will stop at nothing. He will stop at nothing. So this is where NASA comes in. Of course it is. <laughs> oh, fucking course. This is where NASA comes into the fucking picture. How, okay. So as, as you may have known, Stanley was rather interested in, uh, in the Apollo program. Mm. Was he? <laughs> Yeah, um, he was rather interested in what NASA was doing on the moon, he, specifically because he was working on a film uh, called 2001 A Space oh, I thought you were going to say called The Moon Landing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, but he already so, had contacts at NASA from all his work on 2001. Yeah, exactly. So he he was able to find out that that Carl Zeiss, who is one of the world's uh, premier lens makers, Ooh. essentially, had created a lens for NASA called the Zeiss Planar F0.7. Okay, F0.7. That's, I guess, assume the lowest that it goes. Uh, I believe that... That... In air, I don't think it's physically possible to make a lens below 0.4. <laughs> With air, right. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, like, <laughs> if there is air that the light has to travel through, then I think it's technically, physically impossible to go much lower than that. That's hilarious. So he worked with <laughs> um, NASA. Well, no, he, he didn't work with NASA. NASA. He just he found, found out that, that, that this... That 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 so Zeiss, Zeiss had made had a lens for NASA. NASA. Is what I meant. Zeiss had worked with NASA to make this lens, the Zeiss Planar, fifty millimeter f zero point seven. And he called up Zeiss, and he had found that they had made ten lenses. <laughs> How many did NASA ever. have? Six. <laughs> And I think most of them are in space somewhere. Currently in space. So the reason why NASA wanted this lens is so that it could it could photograph the 
the dark side of the moon. Presumably photograph in space, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Kubrick was able to convince Zeiss to sell him three of them. <laughs> wow. That's a lot. So there are ten of these lenses. Six were sold to NASA. Presumably some of those are in space. <laughs> Zeiss still has one of them, and three of them belong to Kubrick. Belong to the Kubrick estate now. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's crazy. And this was not a simple solution. Doesn't sound like a simple solution because, because this is a lens that this is this is a lens that was not designed to be used on a movie camera. Oh yeah, no shit. <laughs> 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 this is designed to be put on a satellite. Exactly. So they actually found that um, I, I I assume Stanley would have loved to have this 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 fit on his Airflex two C. Imagine. But that was deemed to be impossible deemed because of i i explained a couple episodes ago about a reflex viewfinder i think yeah i think i remember that yeah but essentially there is a spinning mirror inside many movie cameras between the film and the lens that allows it to redirect the picture anyway the problem is they the rear element of this lens protruded so far back that it would have hit the the mirror. Yeah, I believe that was They Live episode that you talked about that. Was it? No, I think it was earlier than that. Or um, it was the general. Yeah, it, was it, was the general. Uh, it was the general. The general. That yeah, makes yeah, way yeah, more yeah. sense. Yeah. So anyway, the uh, the 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 rear element of the lens would have in, would have hit the view the viewfinder mirror. Right. So okay. So would uh been- well then let's let's use a uh, a film that does not have a ref- uh, sorry a camera that does not have a reflex viewfinder. Enter the Mitchell BNC. That's the big boy. This is the big boy. Uh, but there was still an issue. Mm. In fact, this uh, the lens element had to protrude so far back that it was actually only four millimeters from the plane of the film. <laughs> okay, okay. So less than a centimeter. That's that's good. <laughs> that's pretty close so so he had to have this Mitchell so half a essentially essentially torn apart by this guy named Ed DeGuilio so they had a guy tear this camera apart so they could jam NASA so that they could into it and, and they had to modify the lens as well to make it fit Jesus and everything Christ. doesn't waste so time got... or money well, I don't know. Like, it was worth it, man, to shoot in candlelight. I mean, I guess Stanley himself probably personally bought the lens. Yeah, no, I don't think he wasted any of the uh, any of the. I mean, he's a huge, a huge gearhead. Yeah, I think that that should be clear. Yeah, <laughs> this man owned more cameras than he knew what to do with. Anyway, so they couldn't get it into the camera, so they had to modify the camera and the lens such that so that you could actually fit it. Right. And also with no reflex viewfinder, so you can't see through the lens while you're shooting. Uh, which I guess you didn't. You don't have to see through it when Stanley's already. Yeah, when Stanley telling you exactly where everything's going to go because he went through it with the viewfinder. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's already know. done the the director viewfinder. Okay, so they finally have a lens and film and 
a uh, candles that are bright enough yeah. that can finally expose a proper image onto the camera. Finally. Right? Finally. So you, you can film by candlelight, right? Yeah. Well, we're not done yet. Oh, God. That wasn't the only issue. No, there's, there's more problems to overcome. <laughs> there are more problems to overcome. Because remember when I said earlier about... So so F0.7, that's referring to the aperture. That's how wide the aperture is, remember? Yeah. And remember that low numbers are a larger aperture, uh-huh. right? And remember that as your aperture gets bigger... Depth of... The depth of field. field. <laughs> yes. So, they had a terrible problem here. And that is that, uh, essentially, like, at F0.7, a very small sliver of anything is in focus at any given time. Uh, yeah. So you can see, like, maybe the front of the actor's face and their nose, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, the depth of field is, like, from the nose to the eyes. Exactly. I mean, this depends on how far back of you're course. standing, but yeah, generally it, it's very narrow. Being it's narrow. So yeah. So as a result, what they had to do was uh, so it, it's a bit of a lie to say that you know they would run through the they would all that he would always uh, decide where the uh, where the camera is after he put the actors down. Yeah, in this case, he had to he had to do it differently because there was just no way. Yeah, <laughs> there was no way. Um, so he essentially staged the actors all horizontally, <laughs> so that they would always <laughs> they would and, and and that they would have all their movements be on the same plane, the same, so they would never move towards 2D. or away from the camera. Yeah, they would all they would be in two D, so they would always be the same, roughly the same distance from That's the camera, amazing. And, and therefore in focus. In focus, <laughs> I, someone I was what um, was someone saying? I, I remember reading somebody saying like, yeah. So if you notice that the actors' heads sometimes appear yeah. particularly stiff in certain candlelit shots, it's because they could. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's because do not move your fucking head or you will be blurry, ru- okay? If you ruin the sh- okay, Ryan? Ryan? Okay, Ryan? Ryan, if you ruin the <laughs> shot by moving your head one more time. <laughs> yes. So this is where Douglas Milsom comes in. The first AC. The, the first AC, the focus, focus puller. puller. Oh, God, his job must have been fucking hard. Yeah, so the way I've heard it described is that if, if focus pulling were a video game, uh, the the level that you're on, like the difficulty level, is your f-stop, your iris. Oh man! So they created, <laughs> so the lower your iris, created a the new harder difficulty it is. level for Douglas. <laughs> yeah. So, luckily. Uh, th- actually, funny enough, this is not the first time in films we're talking about complicated focus systems. Remember Die Hard? Oh yeah, because of the. That's right. Because of because yeah because of um you know, the falling uh so. How did they do this? I don't. How did they do this? So so what is what does focus mean first of all essentially like, like think some things are essentially blurred. there is a certain distance from the camera, where things will be sharp right yeah. So if if an actor moves towards the camera, you have to shift the focus so that so that that you have to shift the focus closer by a certain number of inches or feet or whatever yeah. 
so that that is now in focus. Indeed. So what they did was, you know, you know, Stanley decided one camera wasn't enough, or I don't know if this was his idea, but somebody, some smart person <laughs> on set decided that one camera wasn't enough. Okay. What so did they, do? they got a video camera. Like a like a camcorder, okay. Like a like like a and they they so 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 if the if the movie camera the one that they were shooting the film on was pointed at the actors, right ninety degrees from that, they have a TV camera like a like a a video camera right okay right pointed at at the actors' profiles right from the side ninety degrees from the camera gotcha. And then they have the signal coming out of that into a TV, which is sitting next to Doug Milsom. Gotcha. Okay. So Doug Milsom is now seeing a horizontal view of the scene. Gotcha. 90 degrees from what the camera is looking at. Oh, I think I understand where this is going. And on this TV, they have painted a bunch of vertical lines and marked them at distances. Oh, my God. So he could see if if Ryan moved forward by this number of things, I turned the thing this much. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is unreal. So he could see very precisely where Ryan is and how much he needs to adjust the focus. That's so by. smart. Yeah. I don't know who came up with this, but it was genius. It's so smart, but, like, it's so tedious for, for Doug. But so <laughs> smart. <laughs> Yeah. Doug earned his paycheck. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. He really did. This is, like, that is the hardest time anybody, I think, in cinema history <laughs> has had their job. Yeah, seriously. Like, that... Ah, and the pressure riding on you, too. The pressure riding on you, too. Like, you know, this is some fucking fancy-ass fucking NASA lens, man. Oh, my God. They got painted on the screen. <laughs> yeah. So he's using a TV with fucking numbers painted on it to uh, to adjust this fucking probably, like, multi-million dollar NASA project lens. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if the lens costs that much, but it was fucking expensive. I'm, I'm sure, sure it was expensive. <laughs> yeah. But... Like, yeah, it just seems so, like, simultaneously high-tech, but also jury-rigged. Exactly. That is exactly what I was thinking. It's, like, half MacGyvered, half uh, double or, or uh, 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 Mission Impossible. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that is, like, I think the thing with the Zeiss Planar F0.7 lens, like, the NASA lens, is probably, like, you know, one of the most notable like whenever people talk about the cinematography of the movie, that always comes up, like the candlelight scenes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, I mean that's that's one of the more notable how did they shoot it details we've ever covered. Exactly, it's like how how did they shoot that? Like literally, how the fuck did they shoot that? So yeah, every all the light in those scenes was coming from the candles. It was shot at night, pitch black. And someone, I, I forget who said the quote, but someone was saying that it gives everything this quality of, like, an oil painting, which is totally true. Um, 
Yeah, no, really. Also, the fact that a lot of the like uh, poses that a lot of the actors were in were literally copied yeah, from yeah. Well, oil paintings. That is a whole other like, which we didn't. I don't know if. I mean, we didn't really get to it, but like, so much of uh, so many of the scenes from this film are are, are based mm-hmm. off of paintings. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, and uh, I also I want to point out that uh, John Alcott deservedly won the Oscar in 1976 for best but what about for this what film. about Doug? Unfortunately, there is no Oscar for first AC. That's ridiculous. Although um, I want to point out that. Uh, Roger Deakins, a uh, famous cinematographer, right? Uh, in his Oscar acceptance speech, does he thank his? Did name check his focus puller. Good for him. His first AC. <laughs> Good for him. That's a practice we need to get. We need to start getting this into more of the mainstream. AC deserves more credit. They deserve a lot of credit, man. It's a hard job. It's a really fucking hard job. Uh, so okay, so I was talking about. Lenses. Yes. Uh, specifically this very fancy, fancy lens, fancy pants NASA fancy lens. Fancy pants space lens. That's not the only interesting <laughs> lens that was used in this film. Of course not. Because Stanley was a gearhead, as I have said as we've, before, as we've learned, and he just collected like camera lenses and cameras and. Uh, and still cameras and movie cameras and uh, all sorts of cameras. He loved cameras. Yeah, yeah. No shit. He was a fucking yeah, filmmaker. He was a photographer and a filmmaker. <laughs> and a filmmaker. Um, so he uh, he did something that uh, quite a bit on this movie that we've actually done. Was it? And that is to take still photography lenses and adapt them <laughs> for cinema. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, uh, quite a few of the like, specifically a lot of the shots with uh, with the army, like the the battle sequences. Right. So those are actually shot with like a telephoto lens, like a four hundred, like a really long, like four hundred millimeter lens, wow. right? I guess because you uh, have which to... is very strange. Well, no, no, it was just a stylistic oh, thing. Okay. Um, Why? So it. Uh, because the look that it gave, uh, it kind of, it makes the lines seem like very, very straight. Everything almost seemed like isometric, you know what right. I mean? Right. Yeah. Okay. Like it minimizes the perspective. Yeah. I see what you mean. And it, and, 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 and so it's, it's a really long lens from really far away, which is very odd for Stanley because he generally liked to use wide angle lenses. Yeah. So, but, um, in fact, he liked to use some preposterous I <laughs> uh, like there's this one scene in in the shining documentary where he's like oh yeah take like the the nine millimeter in your pocket just in case like the nine millimeter lens and nine millimeter on a 35 millimeter negative it's preposterously wide, wide. Um, like, but uh well, what is the standard for 35 well 50 millimeter is generally well I would say thirty, like for cinema, it's thirty-five millimeters. For still photography, it's generally fifty millimeters. Right. Um, the difference being that still photography actually uses a larger negative. So right, right, right. You have to. Anyway, I'm not gonna 
explain that right now. <laughs> That's um, a different conversation. But yeah, the planar, the the Zeiss planar was fifty millimeters. Wow. Just just for yeah, um, yeah, yeah. so fifty millimeters. It's a pretty standard yeah. lens. But anyway, four hundred millimeters is, I think, the focal length that they were using for. Uh, this is, this is a really long lens from really far away, and what that does is that it it minimizes the effect of perspective. So you see, like, all these uh, guys marching in, like, perfectly straight lines, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it, it looks really cool, and it looks like you're kind of, like, spying on it from, like, far... Like, you're watching this battle from far away, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, of course, it gives it that... Well, I mean... Yeah, it gives it that, that sort of a... Uh, well, because that's exactly what you're, what you're doing. doing. That spyglass. Like you, yeah. Feeling. Exactly. It's it's like a spyglass. It's exactly like a spyglass. That... Um. Okay. So... There's one more type of lens that he used. Okay. And this is interesting because this is something that um, that while it had its use, was not that commonly used in cinema prior to A this. Shocker that Stanley Kubrick did something that wasn't commonly used in cinema prior to this. And and that kind of lens that we're going to talk about is the zoom lens. The zoom lens. Yes. So uh, zoom lenses are used all all the time That's now. What I was and say. you know, they were used then and but the thing is I, I shouldn't say that he was the first person to use zoom lenses and he wasn't the first person. He definitely wasn't. Uh, and nor was he the first person to actually use the act of zooming a lens in the middle of a shot. But, but the ex the normally it was done for a special effect. Mm -hmm. Like you zoom in, like like you know, uh, when like some like horror movie or something, like when you zoom in on somebody's face when they're screaming or right. something like that. It's like it's like a quick zoom or whatever, right? Yeah. But no movie prior to this used zooming to the same extent. That was done in Barry Lyndon, should I say? Yeah, well, there's so much zooming in this film, zooming in, zooming yeah. out. Yeah. So, so what, 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 do, what do we mean by zooming? I think we should clarify because, like, there's, like, zooming, like a zoom is specifically like, essentially, you're cropping in on like a smaller part of the picture. It, it's yeah. or or you're expanding the crop outward. It, it, it's distinct from moving the camera closer or further to somebody, right? Right. Yeah. And so the way yeah, that that yeah. is... A, yeah, yeah. I, I, the way that that is accomplished is that uh, you actually have a lens that can vary its focal length. And what the fuck does that mean? Essentially, you have a lens that can change its field of view. Right. And, and what happens is for these shots... That were so many so commonly used in this film, they you can either start on a small area, then expand to a larger area while changing your uh, your field of view in the middle of the shot, yeah. and you're zooming in and out essentially. Right. Um, and the reason I'm hesitant to use the uh, the term zoom. Okay. Is because apparently this is a term that Stanley didn't like. Oh, okay, of course it's a term he doesn't like. <laughs> Okay. What is the term? Did Apparently, he, like? he preferred to use the term "varying the focal length." Oh God! <laughs> Fuck off, Stanley. 
<laughs> a lot longer um, to say, Stanley. Yeah, uh, but how many zooms do you think there are in? Oh my Very god, Linda? you didn't! No way. <laughs> <laughs> how, how many zooms do you think well, there the are? Okay, there's two I can think of off but, the top but, of my head. Yeah. Okay. So, and do you think we're gonna find out? I think we might. I think it might be part. I think it might be in on the docket. Yeah. To start to start counting. Yeah. And so that we can know what the actual metrics are. Yep. Okay, we're back to Cinemetrics again. Cinemetrics, part two. So this is so this is a Barry Lyndon part three. Cinemetrics part yes. two. Uh, so how many zoom how many zoom shots you think there are in Barry Lyndon? Meaning, a a shot where the field of view changes in the middle of the shot. So a varying of the focal length. A varying of the focal length in the middle of the shot. <laughs> So, so the, the the first one I can think of, right off the top of my head, is the is the one where he's uh where they, uh, uh, uh Lady Linden and Bullington are walking and then they see Barry, with his mistress, and it zooms in on Barry. That is the mistress. very much not the first zoom shot. No, no, no. But that's the one I'm th- one I'm thinking of. Right. I would. Uh, then there's another one where he it's zooming away from him and he's really sad. I remember mm-hmm. that, but. Yeah, I would probably have to say there's. I'm gonna go with 27 zoom shots. 27. That's your final That's my answer. Final answer. The answer is 36. <laughs> That's so many more than I thought. Yes. So, the very first zoom shot in the movie is in fact, the very first shot in the movie. That's right. And that is the duel that they're talking about with his father. And I'm sure uh, he would have... How his father died in a duel. Have, uh, exceeded quite well in this profession. Yes, had he not been killed in a duel. <laughs> so not only... So yeah, so there are 36 zoom shots in... So uh, how did you count that? I have more information, actually. Oh, but okay. let me just say I didn't. Okay, good. Uh, somebody did it for me. Thank God. I would like to thank Jeffrey Scott Bernstein for putting together a very interesting uh, rundown thank you, of Jeff. all of this Free? in uh, in a uh, PDF that I will send you now. Actually, don't look at it because uh, uh, then you will see all the numbers on my website. Okay. okay, so thirty-six zooms in the total of Barry Lyndon, right? Right, thirty-six total. Would you say there are more zoom outs or zoom ins? I'm gonna go. And I, I should also say it's 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 also interesting. Another interesting thing about the zooms in this movie is how deep they are. So like how like the the distance that they crop like like they he used a ten to one zoom lens on oh, this. Wow! Holy fuck! Which means that you can go. You essentially are going from like an eyeball to like you know yeah yeah a big 
fucking field. Like, you can see the whole person and everything and people around them, too. Yeah, that's insane. Ten to one. So, so you can see in the beginning where they're loading the pistol, I believe. Yeah. And it zooms all the way out from that into, uh, into the duel happening. That's awesome. Uh, so, so you, sorry, do you think there are more zoom ins or zoom outs? I think there's more zoom outs. There are, in fact, more zoom outs. Is that what I said? Yeah. Yes, you are correct. Uh, there are 25 oh, holy zoom shit. outs. So most of them are zoom outs. 25 zoom outs and 11 zoom ins. Zoom outs are more complaint. Complimentary? Contemplative? Contemplative. Contemplative? Yeah, I don't know. Contemplative? I don't know. Anyway, yes. The advantage of the zoom out is that you direct somebody's attention to something first. And uh, then you show them the context. Yeah, that is a more effective, I think, tool. It's it's, it's sort of better for storytelling because I think. you start. Yeah, you start because somewhere, and then you start with some information, and then you reveal more information. Right. As opposed to revealing all the information all at once and then focusing on something. Yeah, definitely seems you like a I mean? more yeah yeah more effective tool. Commonly effective. Yes. So we also have it separated by part. There are two parts to the yeah, movie, right? Yeah, part one and part two. Okay. Do you think there are more zooms in part one or part two? I think there's more zooms in part two. You're right. There are 20 zooms in part two and 16 in part one. That's, uh, okay, that's not, it's pretty, pretty close, but. It's pretty close. It's pretty even. Um, it's pretty even. But, uh. How many zoom ins do you think there are in part one? Uh, okay, so part one was sixteen. How many of those? And there yeah. were how many zoom ins total? Six. Zoom ins eleven. Eleven. Eleven zoom ins in the whole. Eleven movie. zoom ins in the whole movie. I'm going to say s- seven of them were in the first part. Five of them. Oh, in the first part. So you naturally six of them would be in the second part. Six in the second part. Yeah, so there are also 11 zoom outs in the first part and 14 zoom outs in the second part. <laughs> so so you might think, okay, you know, part two is the more zoom-heavy part, right? So it seems. So it would seem. So uh, it however, would seem. part two is shorter than part one. Oh, so there's even so the so, so it's actually even denser with zooms. It's, yeah, exactly. It's a it's almost like twenty minutes shorter, isn't it? Exactly. So the first part is one hundred and two minutes. This is by my count. Uh, the first part I counted to be one hundred and two minutes long, and the second part is eighty three minutes long. Okay. This in, yeah, th- this includes title sequences and credits. Right. So, uh, twenty over eighty three is 0.24 zooms per minute in part two. In part two. 0.24 zooms yes. per minute. So how many zooms per minute in part one? Okay. Easy. 16 over 102. 0.15. 0.15 zooms per minute. 0.1568. 0.157, let's say. Let's call it 0.157. 0.157 zooms per minute. 
in part one. Yes. Yes. And 0.24 zooms per minute in part two. Tell me more. We have it broken down whether or not the zoom is in an interior location or an oh, exterior location. It just location. gets better and better. Holy shit. Okay. Okay. So, do you think the zooms happen more inside or outside? Outside, for sure. Yeah, I think I think that that, that should be clear. Especially because the zoom out and you're revealing more information. There's only so much information you can reveal. You can only zoom inside out a room so far without without showing like you know lights and shit like yeah. that that you don't want to see. So there are sorry 27 zooms in exterior locations yeah. and nine zooms in interior locations. Nine in interior locations. I can't think of one interior zoom off the top of my head. When Lady Linden is uh, sitting. With Lord Bullington. And oh, the kid. yeah, 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 yeah. And, and she has her big poofy hair. Yeah, and uh, that's when they're saying that uh, uh, Barry Lyndon wants her to just be a piece of the furniture or something. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and there's also the scene where Lady Lyndon's in the bathtub. Yeah, yeah, well, a lot of her sitting and staring vacantly Exactly. Well, yeah. Yeah. Out. <laughs> yeah um, so yeah. Interestingly, also, and this is probably not that surprising, is that all of the interior zooms are in part two. That's not surprising. There is there really much no. interior in part one. <laughs> I guess there's the scenes with the candlelight. There's the scenes with the chevalier. Is that part one? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's right. That is a part one. Yeah. That's I always think of that as part two, but yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. By the time he um, by the time he gets to the Chevalier, there's more inside. Yeah. Also, uh, there's the scene where he like there's the scene at his uncle's house where he there's throws like, the drink in. Uh, yeah, Captain where he throws Queen's the drink face. at fucking John Quinn. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Plenty of shit. So that is that is zooms, man. Um, yeah. Lots in this movie. Thirty. Uh, Thirty-seven. Lots of deep zooms. Thirty-seven of them. Lots of ex- yeah, I, I I can't think of another film that uses so many. It was it was definitely something I noticed. I should have said that at the top of this segment that there was a lot of zooms. Yeah, and uh, an interesting thing is, um, you know that Stanley would not have used a zoom lens unless he intended to zoom with it. <laughs> That's a good point. The, the reason for that being that zoom lenses are generally of an inferior optical quality. Right. One right, you got to sacrifice for your for that distance. Exactly. And... and and we know that Stanley would not stand for sacrificing optical quality. When you saw that that his projectionist's letter. You saw that projectionist's letter exactly. <laughs> It's all about the optical quality. All about the quality. Um, optical quality. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there is much more that you could talk about. The cinematography for this movie, it's probably the most important part of this movie. Um, it's probably the most important part of lots of Stanley's movies. Um, yeah. It's... What can you say? Honestly, it's what can you amazing. say? The cinematography it's, is what makes this movie. Or how do they shoot it? It knocks it out of the park. It, yeah. From from the fucking... Uh, the lines painted on the screen. Um, yeah. 
to the zooming. It's there's just so much cool shit going on here. And the lighting, fuck me. Like Oh, uh did you wanna know which scene the uh the light is in? Oh yes. That you can see in the yes, shot. Yes, yes, which scene? Okay. Uh, I believe that it is in the scene where he's at the restaurant and the dude like is uh Oh yeah, the the Lord uh, and he like that really yeah, sad he, like, scene. He gives him the yeah, the cold shoulder because he's like, you he's know. like, uh, I will write to you if uh, if that is satisfactory. Yeah, no, I, uh, we're not. You've been uh... the, the Lord's <laughs> way of saying "fuck you," get away from yeah. me. Yeah. So it's it's been a long road. It's been a long road. We have spent significantly more time on this movie than the already really long movie. Than the movie itself, yeah. And we could spend some. Which, to be honest, we do for most movies, actually, now that I think about it. But, yeah, so it's it's true. There must be... That could be a fun set of metrics. There might be a a ratio to, like, how long our episodes are versus... Actually, I wonder, has is there any movie we've talked shorter about than the length of the movie? I don't I think wonder. so. Okay, I, I, actually, I'm going to look into that's, that. That's a fun... Because that's something pretty easy to find yeah. out. Yeah. Um, um, okay, anyway, continuing. That being uh, said, final thoughts, final thoughts. Well, yeah, it's, it's the time where we've got to, we finally, after three episodes, got to give our uh, our absolutely final thoughts on this film. I think our our, our thoughts about Stanley have, have bled through. We're clearly fans of his work, questionably, yeah. uh, questionable on his, uh, his uh, uh, some of his behaviors are clearly questionable, um, but we're fans of his work. But do you want to go uh, go yeah. on and give us uh, some of your final th- thoughts on this film? On this film, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. It's great, man. It's really good. <laughs> six hours uh, and sum it up with yeah, it's great, man. Six- it's obviously a movie that warrants talking six hours about. Yeah, and we so, could talk like, a lot more. Know. And that's the thing is we missed a lot. We s- that's the thing. I, I, there's, there's even so much more. Yeah, like I feel like we yeah. missed stuff. I feel like. Yeah. Anyway, but like you know, there's can't cry over spilt milk. But like, yeah. Uh, thing is like, um, I kind of started this doing this and i was kind of thinking like you know this is kind of the black sheep of his filmography yeah um but i've now decided that that's not the case oh really <laughs> yeah um and what changed your opinion doing more research actually and what, what uh what have I decided is now the black sheep of his filmography? That is Full Metal Jacket. Uh, <laughs> I was kind of under the impression. I guess I wasn't under that impression. Well, a lot of people have seen the first half of Full Metal Jacket. What do you mean by that? Um, it's it's got a really memorable first half and less memorable, mostly because of Lee Ermey. But we're not talking about that movie. No, we're not talking about Full Metal Jacket. This is our final thoughts on Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon. You know, maybe we will talk about Full Metal Jacket one day, but not yet. I think, I agree. I think this, my my first thoughts, my initial thoughts, I kind of saw this film as like a bit of an outlier in a lot yeah. of ways. Although it is an outlier in the sense that, uh, according to Stanley, 
Uh, this is the only film that was not economical for the studio. <laughs> I mean, I guess we didn't really even get into that. It like it didn't. Yeah. wasn't that successful. It 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 was success. It made its money back, but. It didn't quite get the ratio that his previous films yeah. had had, and it was it was big in continental Europe. Yeah, I, not the UK. I don't think it was very big. Yeah, or the US. It wasn't big in the US or the UK. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, to to really sum it up, it's one of the most beautiful f- films I've ever seen. Um. Really. Yeah. It's the technical details that we just covered are like some of the most fascinating I've ever looked into and just his filmmaking process is just unbelievably fascinating and it was a lot of fun looking into this film and like you know how they overcame the lighting issues and how they you know did all this stuff just everything about it really and I mean half the things they every every like minute on film has like hours of you know discussion shit yeah exactly you know hours of things you can talk about and hours of work went into it you know exactly like every yeah. scene like there's a story behind every foot of film yeah yeah um and okay so there was actually one cinematrics things i wanted to have in here but i couldn't find the number oh bummer what was that and i wanted to calculate the shooting ratio for this film I wanted to see how much film they ran through the cameras versus how much was used. How do you even find numbers for that? Well, because Stanley kept track of it. Well, no, every 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 uh, every filmmaker would have obviously had to keep track of it because it's a budget oh, right, thing, yeah, right? Right, right, right. You got to pay for film. But yeah, specifically, I was able to find the information for uh, a Clockwork Orange. Okay, but. That's not this movie. But yeah, so that that's that. That's that. Any any more final yeah, thoughts that you that's have? That's our takes. Um, yeah, no, it's just like, uh, uh, you know, I will sum it up with like my final bit of you know getting inside the head of Stanley Kubrick. Yes. Which is, uh, you know, he uh, he might have done some weird things. Uh, he might have not made it the easiest for everybody on set. Nope. But damn, shit on screen's good, yeah, man. Yeah, he made some fucking killer films, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. Period. Yeah. And this is a killer. This really? is one of them. Well, I gotta I gotta just uh, thank all oh, our yeah, of listeners in uh, in North Dakota. Well, thank you, North Dakota listeners. I I was in North Dakota briefly for a few hours once. Were yeah. you? What was it like? It was nice. I, I bought some strawberry milk. That's yeah. Drank it. Cool. Yeah. yeah.